I want to leave because I feel there are more important things I want to devote my life to than just doing deals and making money. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to StoryMark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they live. On today's show, the father of British venture capital and social investment, Sir Ronald Coyne. Sir Ronald Cohen is not your typical knight. The Egyptian-born British businessman cut his teeth in venture capital, a field that he basically was the first to bring to the UK. But his later achievements in social capital may have been even more impactful. At age 60, Sir Ronald left Apex Partners, the highly successful venture capital firm he founded, to tackle two main issues, social problems such as poverty and the Israel-Palestinian conflict. During our discussion, I was struck by Sir Ronald's humility and gratitude. He attributes his success, among other things, to the mentorship and support of his parents, business partners, and even his high school history teacher. Sir Ronald was born in Cairo, Egypt, in 1945. It just so happens that my father was also born in Egypt that same month. And for Sir Ronald, even as a religious minority... Most people are surprised to hear that Egypt was a very liberal place where Jews and Arabs and Christians went to the same schools. I went to a Catholic school, very strict, excellent education in French, and there were Muslim and Christian children, and you went to each other's services if you wanted to. It's only really when Nasser came to power and the issue of Israel began to appear in the context of Egyptian and Arab nationalism, that you began to see pushback against uh, Jews. And of course, it erupted after the Suez crisis in 1956. And I remember at that time as a child seeing posters in the streets with a Magen David, a Star of David, and a snake. Below it was written, uh, The Zionist. The police came in the middle of the night, told us that uh, my mother, who had a British uh, passport, would be under house arrest. The next uh, morning, there was an X carved next to the entrance door, and my mother started selling the furniture to the neighbors, convinced that this wasn't going to be a passing thing. The Egyptian government confiscated all the goods. Uh, my father had an import-export company. Uh, somebody was put into run it, and a couple of years later he got a bill for unpaid taxes. So we lost everything. You were allowed to take a suitcase and 10 Egyptian pounds each, which was nothing. And so we left in May 57. As you had to leave Egypt, a lot of people decided to move to Israel. Your family decided to move to the UK. Do you know as a kid what were some of the reasons behind that? Yeah, now I remember my parents saying that the situation in Israel was very difficult, which it was after the immigration from Morocco and other places, and that uh, people were therefore going to Brazil, Australia, and Canada, which accepted stateless Jews, because the Nasser regime took our Egyptian passports away from us if we left the country. Yeah. And we were actually on our way to Brazil. But my mother's family had British passports and said, why are we going all the way to Brazil? Let's stay here. The kids will get a much better education. And so we stayed and became British and uh, very grateful to Britain for welcoming us. Wow. 
So how was your first uh, few years in England? For me, it was viewed as a very positive challenge. The minute we arrived, my parents tried to give us a sense of an adventure. And I went uh, to a school where I needed to gain admission. And at that interview, where I didn't speak very much English, my dad said to the headmaster, look, it's not because he's my son, but if you take him, he'll be top of the class. Now, you can imagine for an 11-year-old kicked out of a place, a sense of adventure, it became an objective <laughs> for me. I didn't want to let my father down in particular. And so I went for it. And I had been a good student in Egypt, it has to be said. My father had some just <laughs> justification for encouraging the headmaster in this way. A teacher there, a man who played a very big role in my life called Richard Farley, to whom I'm hugely indebted, was a history teacher, one of the most widely read people I've ever come across, said to me one day, Cohen, you should go to Oxford. And I said, well, how am I going to get to Oxford from the school? It's never sent anybody virtually. And he said, look, I'm going to train you for the entrance exams. And he gave me a list of 200 books to read. But I was passionate about reading, and he gave me unbelievable books to read. And so I got in, thanks to Richard Farley. I looked for him for years. And after 40 years, I was back in touch with him for several years until he died. Getting into Oxford was a very big deal for me, as you can imagine, walking into 700-year-old college with a huge history of achievement. You sort of felt anything's possible. I was a good debater, even though I hadn't spoken English until a few years before. And so I became president of the debating uh, society, the Oxford Union, which had been the home of many prime ministers, actually. And when I uh, finished my term of office, I went home and I said to my dad, what am I going to do with a degree in philosophy, politics and economics? And he said to me, why don't you go to Harvard Business School? At that stage, I was thinking, I need to become financially independent. I'm going to have to look after my parents in their old age. And so I said to my dad, what a great idea. You know, that was a major defining moment for me because that was the moment when I realized something new was in the air. The moment was when one of the first venture capitalists in the U.S., an unlikely figure, a French general called General Dorio, came to speak to my section at Harvard. And he explained that he had invested in a mini computer company called Digital Equipment and that he'd put in $70,000 and that when it went public, he was going to collect $100 million. And that's when I got the idea of becoming a venture capitalist. I was uh, then 23. All of a sudden, I realized, wow, this is a great way to build a career to do good and do well. It was a way of creating jobs at the time when the UK badly needed it. It was also a way to make myself financially independent because if you were good at investing, you could make serious money. We started in 1972. At that time in the US, the average venture capital fund was two and a half million dollars. And there were no such funds in Europe. Huh. So we started off basically raising money for growth companies on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. And then two of our partners decided to give up. I had a conversation with my dad, 
And I said, look, there are three possible ways forward. I could go back to McKinsey, where I'd spent a couple of years. I can go to do an entrepreneurial venture, or I can persevere. And my dad was a very thoughtful man. And my dad said to me, don't work for anyone else. Do your own thing. So he reinforced my, <laughs> my conviction, if you like, that this was the right path. When my two partners left, I was certain that they were making a mistake. Part of it has to do with what I wrote about in my first book, The Second Bounce of the Ball, with understanding where things are heading. Everybody can see the first bounce of the ball, but not many people bother to try to guess where the second bounce is going to be. You had the microchip that was changing the computer industry, and the computer was changing the way every business was going to be working. And so it seemed to me that the second bounce was going to be that a lot of new successful businesses were going to be created. And so any challenge that you had on the way to that, you had to deal with. But I had to find a way of turning a problem into an opportunity, replacing what I had lost with somebody even stronger. And the name of Alan Patrikoff, incidentally, came up in a conversation with my mum. In talking to my mum, which is often the way mums help, uh, you think out loud, right? That's what mums help you do. My mum was a force of nature, great believer in her children's capacity <laughs> to do the impossible, like every Jewish uh, mother, and so I was lucky. I called Alan up and said, look, we have a U.S. partner who's leaving. Will you become our U.S. partner? And on the phone, he said, yeah, let's do it. And so it turned my opportunity to create a fund into something that was much more feasible. Because when, in 1981, we raised the first uh, European fund of Apex in the UK, £10 million, the biggest in Europe at the time, Alan helped to raise half of the money in the United States. And that's been the leitmotif of my life. I've very seldom had a challenge where I didn't feel that the solution was to do something that was even better than what you were doing before. Now, if you realize that you're on the wrong path, then perseverance obviously would be a mistake. You have to pivot to something else. But if you have the conviction that you're on the right path, then you persevere. So in the 80s and 90s, Apex took off up to the point that managed uh, dozens of billions of dollars. Can you talk a little bit about some of the early successes where you felt this is going to be a big thing? I think it's hard today for young people to imagine a world where there's a debate about whether there are entrepreneurs everywhere. It was thought when I kicked off that it would be very difficult to find entrepreneurs in the UK or in Europe, that it was a strictly American phenomenon. But of course, there are entrepreneurs everywhere in the world, and there are plenty of them in the UK. But when we started, some of our investments would make you laugh today. The very first investment I made was backing an inventor who'd put together a machine to mop up water from the tennis courts of Wimbledon and the cricket fields. 
And of course, we lost our investment after <laughs> after a couple of years. But from there, we went on to invest in companies like Waterstones Bookshops, which became a huge success, Virgin Radio. So we had some resounding successes, and some of them moved humanity forward. Um, we invested in the company that cloned Dolly the Sheep, lost all our money there too. But it's the only one of uh, the companies, our firm bank, that made it to the significant companies of the 20th century. Yeah. Venture capital, like a lot of entrepreneurial businesses, is a question of skill and luck. But generally, you make your luck. You make your luck by working hard, by increasing your network of connections, by being open to seizing opportunities instead of being close to them, by being flexible in your approach. And if um, you've persevered in a direction that isn't uh, proving to be fruitful, being able to pivot. And that's how you get lucky. So luck is certainly an element of it. But pure luck has happened to Bill Gates, for example, when he was going to sign the agreement with IBM and his competitor missed his connection and didn't turn up. And he ended up as I understand it, being the only person showing up, and he got uh, the contract for the PC. Pure luck plays less of a role in my experience. And then the product is financial returns, right? If you deliver financial returns, then you grow. And we were lucky as well as skilled, and we delivered good returns, and the company grew exponentially. By the time I left Apex, we were finishing investing a 5 billion euro fund when my first fund had been 10 million pounds. And since then, Apex has raised over $12 billion. I think at the age of 60, you decided to retire. Can yeah. you share a little bit about that decision? In 1998, I decided at the age of 53 to tell my partners I will leave the firm in seven years. I will prepare my exit so the firm can become hopefully a successful institution. It'll be 50 years old this year, by the way, APAX, wow. 50 years old. And I want to leave because I feel there are more important things I want to devote my life to than just doing deals and making money. And the two issues that grabbed me where I thought, if I'm going to make a difference, it's going to take 20 years on each of these, were one, social issues. I'd benefited greatly from being given opportunity. And I could see that if you were born into the wrong family, you didn't get the breaks in life you deserved. And the second thing was the Israeli-Palestinian problem, because comfortable though my life had become in the UK, there was a big issue about the security of Jews. And I felt that contributing to Israel and the security of Jews was really something that I was uniquely placed to contribute to because I was born in an Arab country but had kept a very positive view of Arab populations and, and their leaders. You know, my family had been in the Middle East for centuries. Because my wife is Israeli, because her dad had become a national hero here by bringing Holocaust survivors on the Exodus and other things. So I said to my partners, there are two more important things I want to do than to deliver a 30% rate of return. <laughs> you know? 
and many believed that I wouldn't leave. It was an upward-moving escalator. It was obviously leaving a lot of money on the table, potentially. And I did. I left on the 1st of August, 2005. Your birthday. My birthday. But something important happened between my decision in 98 and my leaving seven years later. It was a phone call from the UK Treasury, which, luckily for me, asked the question, would you look at the issue of poverty? Because however much money we throw at it, we don't seem to be making a dent. And so I got all of a sudden thrown into this challenge, and a light bulb went on after a year's work. The reason we haven't made more progress in dealing with social issues is we've relied only on government spending and philanthropy to do it. We haven't done what we do in the field of business, which is to bring investment capital to social entrepreneurs who want to improve lives. And if you look at charitable organizations which are dependent on raising philanthropic money, almost all of them, they're small and they're out of money. And so I said it must be possible to develop ways of linking investment to social entrepreneurs. So the story continues with the invention of the social impact bond in 2010. Two young people in their 30s, Toby Eccles and Emily Bolton, came up to my office and said, we've been tackling this issue of prisoner reoffending and looking for new ways of bringing investment capital in. What do you think if we link a financial return to a reduction in the number of prisoners going back to jail. And the light bulb went on in my head immediately. And I said to them, wow, you have found the way to link social entrepreneurs to the capital markets. Let's structure this as a security whose return depends on achieving an improvement in the number of prisoners not reoffending, improving the dropout rate from school, improving the rate of homelessness, and so on and so forth. That idea has led to a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars, last year, being in sustainability-linked bonds and loans. That concept is a very powerful concept because it optimizes not just risk and return, but risk, return, and measurable impact. And that idea is the one embodied in my book, Impact, Reshaping Capitalism to Drive Real Change. We're in the middle of a paradigm shift to this new system of risk-return impact because the old system of risk-return is creating such negative impacts that we can't cope with the climate consequences or even with the social consequences. And we're going to see a second revolution now, where the change of values comes together with leaps of technology that enable us to deliver impact in ways humanity could never have contemplated. Amen. And I haven't been wrong in my estimation that it would take about 20 years to do anything useful, like I'm three years away from <laughs> the 20-year mark. Well, who knows? Three years is a long time. I do want to switch to the other side that you're investing in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What are some of the initiatives, what are some of the successes, and also what are your thoughts about the future? So in 2003, shortly before I left Apex, I established with a very dear partner, Sir Harry Solomon, a very successful British industrialist, the Portland Trust, 
The mission is to work on the economic dimension of the conflict. Like, there are plenty of people who are dealing with the political negotiations and with the security consideration. There are very few that are looking at the economic dimension. And so the Portland Trust was set up to help develop the Palestinian economy, while at the same time doing good on the Israeli side as well. And we're implementing some really interesting impact-driven initiatives. We helped a fantastic Palestinian entrepreneur, Bashar Masri, build a new town called Rawabi, which provided 15,000 jobs, but also became an icon for what a modern Palestine can look like. We've helped to design a pension fund for Palestinians working in the private sector. And now we're working on training Palestinians in the tech sector to create a pool of talent that can sustain a Palestinian tech hub. Israel and the whole region suffer from a huge dearth of software engineers. And you have 3,000 graduates from computer studies from Palestinian universities each year, but they need to complete their studies with practical experience. And so we've been very busy with that. On the Israeli side, we were confronted with an issue which involved young women in the Druze community. The Druze community is a religious community of about 300,000 people in Israel. It's an offshoot of Islam. They're a community that prizes education. They go to the army. Many have become officers. So they're an example of an integrated Muslim community in Israel. Yeah. So these young women, between 25, 28, typically two or three children each, religious, can't work outside of the village, were in the top 10% of their high school, are working in a supermarket as cashiers. If you give them eight months of coding training, you can multiply their salary four or five times. They can continue to work from a facility we've helped establish where each position is employed by an Israeli tech company remotely. So now you have a sustainable model for training and placing in employment gifted women who otherwise would have been making a fraction of what their skills justify. We're doing the same thing now in the Arab sector at even bigger scale, and we're doing it in the Haredi sector. Anyway, these are just examples of how you can use these impact approaches to create sustainable economic drivers on both sides. A few questions that we ask all of our guests. What is the one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you? I have no idea. I don't know what people get wrong about me. I have the impression that I'm understood pretty well. That's uh, amazing. What are you most optimistic about? The future. I think we live in historic times. The three forces I've talked about, the massive change in values, the leaps in technology, the transparency on the impacts of companies, are hugely powerful forces to improve our world. And last one, what piece of advice do you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? The advice I give to people is the advice that I received from my dad. Start young, think big, and stick with it. So, Ronald Cohen, thank you so much for being with us today. Great pleasure, Gil. 
You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram, at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit itrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Eli Blyer, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and let's go out. See you next time.